everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. Today, my guest is Dr. Michael Quinn Patton. For those of us in the evaluation field, he is often referred to affectionately as MQP. Michael is an independent evaluator, an organizational developmental consultant, and is based in Minnesota. He is the former president of the American Evaluation Association and a prolific writer, having authored eight major evaluation books. He has certainly been a major influence in my career, and I would say probably the career of most evaluators today. He's also a really deep thinker. So today on the podcast, we're going to get to know MQP and find out how he came to be who he is, where his thoughts are now as it relates to communities and how we live with each other. So this podcast is not just for evaluators. It is all of us who work in communities really doing the hard work of social change. I really hope you enjoy this conversation and let me know what you think of it. Thanks for joining everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. I have as my guest, and I'm so excited, uh, he's sometimes known as MQP, Michael Quinn Patton. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Anne. Delighted to be here. Congratulations on doing it. Well, thank you. It's one of those... um, things that ended up on my vision board. So be careful what you put on your vision board (laughs) because it it just might happen. That is the purpose, I presume. (laughs) So we actually finally met in person at AEA a few months ago. So in the, New Orleans, yes. Yeah, exactly. So the secret uh, is uh, the secret to networking and connecting uh, to those of you who uh, who uh, struggle sometimes is to hang out in the bar at the conference. <laughs> right. Is that not true? It is. It is. So uh, for those of you who don't know, and as we were uh, talking at the conference, my audience is really community leaders, coalition leaders, community organizations. It not, it's not necessarily evaluators. So some of my listeners may not uh, know who you are. So I always like to start with that introductory question. And I always say, don't tell me your Vita. Don't tell me all the, tell me how you came to be who you are. Uh, wow. That's a big question. Um uh, I grew up uh, uh, in a lower working class family in Dayton, Ohio. My father worked in, in a factory. My mother died when I was young. And uh, the church community was very important uh, to us because of, of uh, that. And uh, I went uh, graduated from undergraduate school at the University of Cincinnati in the midst of the Vietnam War, where my choices were either to go to war or go to peace. So I joined the Peace Corps and a very important seminal part of my life in Burkina Faso when it was still Upper Volta, Laos Volta, working among the Gorma people uh, who had a very strong sense of community and um, working with them, getting to know their way of being, their culture, their sense of community. Their language is community-based when they, uh, they don't have a word for an individual autonomous I. Their their pronouns are I as a part of my clan, as a part of my family, as a part of my community. Um, So they locate themselves in relationship to other people in the very structure of their language. Um, And uh, that led me to 
uh, graduate school after Peace Corps doing work in sociology, especially community sociology. Uh, I uh, did my dissertation on innovative approaches to uh, open education and the one-room schoolhouse in North Dakota was the basis of my sample, which is a very strong community-oriented approach to schooling. And uh, that led me into evaluation at the University of Minnesota, which had one of the first uh, training programs, postdoctoral programs in evaluation. I went there in its first year, became director of that, and uh, ended up being an evaluator. Yeah, we often say in the field that um, some of us kind of fell into evaluation. I don't know if we fall into it as much as we progress or grow into it. Well, doors open. Uh, and when uh, when people are paying attention, that is one of the doors that, that opens up. There are a lot of evaluation uh, opportunities and uh, uh, right time, right place. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. I did not know that about you. So most people in our world know you for, you'll love this, utilization, ah. focused evaluation. I don't have them all sitting here, but developmental evaluation. I'm mm -hmm. showing Michael on my camera just so the folks who are listening know. Principles focused evaluation. So tell us about how and why your work kind of has changed over time because there's when I read your your books there's definitely a progression and I, we'll talk about blue marble evaluation in a minute but can you talk about maybe your your growth as a professional and how how your thinking has changed well I got my doctorate in in sociology and really hated graduate school I had just come <laughs> back from from Peace Corps um, and took a uh a peasant sociology course from a man who'd never been out of the country. Um, I had just lived with peasants, as had a number of the other students, because there were several volunteers and a seat of volunteers, uh, people working in rural the United States. Um, and the academic notions of, of people in rural areas, what were called peasants, um, uh, subsistence farmers, was so out of touch um, that... Uh, Given my background, I wanted to, to do something that was useful. And so um, I tended toward applied sociology, trying to figure out how to, to apply it. Um, and that was the framework for my, my dissertation work, which was actually helping people in open education uh, improve what they were doing. And I found that evaluation was a way to help support uh, people who were trying to make changes, whose values I shared, but that that meant changing how evaluation was done. Because 50 years ago, when I came into the business, it was a research-oriented field, and evaluators were not supposed to influence how their findings were used. They were just supposed to generate the findings, hand them off, um, and treat it more as research. Indeed, in my dissertation, when I sent the first draft of my dissertation on open education to my advisor. This is pre-internet, of course, pre-cell phones. Um, I got a long-distance call from him. Getting a long-distance call was a big deal in those days. They were expensive. And and uh, my advisor calling me long-distance uh, got my attention. I picked up the phone, and he, uh, he explained who he is. And then he said, has anybody else seen your dissertation? And he said it in a very scary way. 
And I said, uh, no. He said, oh, good. That, that final chapter has to go. Recommendations are not appropriate in a scholarly piece of work. Um, and so that was my framing in academia was we weren't supposed to be involved in change. We were just supposed to study it. Um, well, that's not how I wanted to approach evaluation. So utilization-focused evaluation was actually quite heretical in the 1978 when the first edition came out because it basically made the argument that evaluators uh, ought to use their skills and research to help improve things, that we have a stake in the world being a better place, that uh, it's fine to share values with the people in communities and in programs, and uh, and still our skill set is to be able to help them look at things with a different set of eyes, um, to see things in a in a way that may be helpful to them. Since we all have selective perception, we all have biases, uh, having somebody else take a look at what you're doing can be helpful. Um, and so uh, that I called that utilization-focused evaluation and took the position that evaluations ought to be judged by how they're used, not just by their methodological quality. Uh, and uh, got involved with debates about that. As I said, that was considered quite heretical at the moment. Now it's uh, the mainstream version of how we ought to do work. Evaluators uh, as a field have adopted a principle that evaluations ought to be useful. Our standards call for us to be useful. But they were still uh, done in a fairly rigid way of defining what the intervention was and and deciding whether it worked or not. Uh, what was called summative evaluation was the ultimate judgment of a merit and worth, whether an intervention, a program, a project, whether it worked. Um, and I was working with a, a leadership, community-based leadership program. The Blandon Foundation is a community-oriented foundation in northern Minnesota that works with rural communities um, and they have a leadership training program. And I was doing a standard contract. I ran an evaluation center by then at University of Minnesota. And as I worked with them, they were adapting to lots of changes going on in the world. The internet was coming in, the HIV AIDS epidemic was hitting people, crack cocaine epidemic, globalization of farming, um, the changes in relationships with Native American communities, immigrants moving into rural areas, doing farming, uh, schools consolidating, and that uh, it became clear that something like a leadership program was not going to be a fixed intervention that was just a model and you kept doing the same thing over and over again, that uh, as the world changed, they needed to change. And so... Uh, that turned out not to be what evaluators did. We looked at standardized programs and decided if a model worked. Everybody was in search of models. So developmental evaluation became the notion that, that uh, in complex dynamic systems, there isn't going to be a model. The model is adaptation. The model is adjusting to change conditions. And uh, uh, that became something that was especially supportive of innovation, um, emergent, dynamic situations, community-based programs where people are deciding what to do and learning as they go. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, everybody had to pivot. Everybody had to adapt. The developmental evaluation in the last two years has really become quite huge. Uh, I did a blog 
early in the in the pandemic saying we're all developmental evaluators now because all programs are adapting and all evaluations are having to adapt. So uh, in some ways, the world caught up with uh, that early uh, effort. And uh, then in looking at how people adapted in conditions of uncertainty and complexity, uh, it turns out that when you don't have a prescriptive model that says do this and step by step and here's the practice, what guides effective initiatives are principles. Principles give you guidance, but they aren't high, highly prescriptive um, in that they have to be adapted to context. Like the difference between a a rule, like a stop sign that, that we know you're supposed to come to a full and complete stop and look both directions. Defensive driving is a set of principles. Don't drive distracted, adjust your driving to road conditions, to other drivers, to weather conditions. It gives you guidance but you have to adapt and interpret that guidance in context. That's what principles are. And so principles-based uh, programs turn out to be a pretty big niche in social movements, in community-based movements, where um, uh, people haven't yet got a, a, a logic model or a theory of change or outcomes that are highly measurable, but they're trying to change the world. They're, they're coming together to make a difference. And what they're guided by is a set of values and a set of principles. So principles-focused evaluation is a way of, of working with principles-driven people in principles-based initiatives. Well, I, I love that. And uh, you may you may or may not know, I'm a community psychologist, so I'm all about context, uh, all about uh, community-led, community-driven work. And I spent a lot of time uh, in rural areas uh, all over, but especially in, in Georgia, where I am based. Uh, so I, I love that. Um, and golly, we're all tired, right? This has just been a very stressful last couple of years. But when you really think about it, there's been a lot of change in the last 20, 30 years, a lot of change. And it's just been accelerated the last couple of years. Um, so, yeah, I want to talk about principles a little more. But first, I want to talk to you about um, community and how you think about community. When I think about community, I'm thinking about um, a, a town or a community coalition or a group of people that come together to work on a, a social change project. How do you think about community? Well, it's, a, it's a great question. It's an important one for the kind of work you're doing and that I'm doing and the people who listen to your podcast. I'm what uh, philosophically is called a social constructivist, which means that um, I believe that people create realities by their relationships. And so I uh, treat a community as any group that calls themselves a community, um, that people self-determine what a community is for them. Um, and that as we've learned that our individual identities are intersectional, we have multiple identities, not just a single identity. I'm not just an old white guy. I'm also a father and an evaluator and and uh, a community member, that communities are intersectional. They have multiple purposes and, and identities. We are parts of multiple communities. And so uh, communities are a matter of social construction, what mm -hmm. people, how they view themselves, what they call themselves, how they identify themselves. Yeah, you know, the last uh, podcast I did was uh, with uh, uh, Kachina Chala from this uh 
she's a senior project director at USAID. Uh, and we had this fabulous conversation of just that, how, how USAID has been able to uh, go in and work with, work alongside communities. And it's exactly what you're talking about, self-identified communities, whether that be uh, trans people or um, women who are, you know, come together with a trade organization. Yeah, but they are definitely like self-defined communities. It's not just this neighborhood, right? right. It's folks coming together with, you know, an identity. So we we talked about context. Uh, there's a lot of talk in, um, in, in, in our world, in the evaluation world, in folks who work in communities about social change, about systems level change. Uh, and, I, and I wonder if you can kind of talk about how you think about that and maybe how you even talk about that. Um, because I know when I'm working with community leaders or community coalitions, if I say something like systems change or social change, they're looking at me like I have three heads. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think I can speak to maybe uh, most evaluators can admit to this, that we do love our jargon. Right? right. We just love our jargon. So how can we like, you know, help folks understand this context that we're talking about to, to think about uh, a systems perspective? Yeah, maybe I'll just stop there and let you kind of mull that over. Uh, uh, it's a really important uh, thing to. For, to, to deal with because it, as you said, the world has changed a lot in the last uh, many years. Um, and one of the changes is coming to understand that um, systems affect what we do to a great extent. Um, in, in fact, I've come to, to believe that a major determinant of whether a project or a program um uh, is effective actually depends upon what system it's a part of. That highly effective programs are often highly effective because they cut themselves off from the surrounding systems that affect them. And that programs that aren't effective are often ineffective because the systems they're a part of crush them. Um, and we've become more aware of that as, especially with the pandemic, um, people are much more aware of the health system. Um, the emergency system of first responders, the uh, and the I'm coming from to you from Minnesota. I'm in northern Minnesota, where uh, in, in Minneapolis, um, my daughter lives just a few blocks from where George Floyd was murdered. Um, she has a very strong community there, and the the uprising that emerged out of that helped give much more attention to the notions of systemic racism um, and structural racism, that it's not just about individuals uh, and their views and biases of discrimination, but the way in which a system operates, the police system in in that case, the criminal justice system. Um, and so uh, I find that ordinary people actually use the language these days. They talk about the system, the government system, the, the capitalist system, people are using that language. When I talk about it, um, to try to get on the same page, um, being that I'm in Minnesota, I talk about it in terms of fishing. Um, Minnesota's where the last glacier melted. Uh, and so it's the land of what's called 10,000 lakes. There are lakes and rivers, of the Minnesota resident population goes fishing at least once a year. So when I do evaluation training 
in Minnesota for years. I wouldn't start by talking about evaluation. I'd start by talking about fishing. How's the fishing? And it turns out that I would say everything we deal with in evaluation is in fishing. What makes a good fishing day? Is it the number of fish you caught, the kind of fish, the size of fish? Are you fishing for recreation or for food? Who are you fishing with? The kids, partners, friends, their fishing competitions um, with big prizes. There's ice fishing. We fish year-round here. People go out on the lakes in huts and fish. Um, and then there's the interesting cost-benefit question of people spend forty, fifty thousand dollars on fishing equipment to catch something that costs fifteen dollars a pound in the supermarket. <laughs> so, so how are they figuring out this cost-benefit ratio? So that's that's been historically how I've approached talking about evaluation. But now I then add, so how is the ecosystem going with regard to fishing? What's the status of our water system? Um, it turns out, for example, that Minneapolis and St. Paul have sewer systems that are equipped to handle three inches of rain, which a uh, five-inch rainstorm in 24 hours would be considered a storm of the century. We had five of those last summer. Um, and that means that all of the pet waste and the lawn chemicals um, and the crap that's in the streets all washes into the rivers and lakes because the sewer system can't handle it. The plastics are in Lake Superior and in uh, Minnesota uh, riverways. There's more pollution than ever because of the extreme weather and, um, and because of mercury dropping out of the air um, from power plants um, and on and on. And then the issues of equity. Who, In the pandemic, it became very clear as people wanted to escape to the lakes, to the rural areas, that there was unequal access to lakes, to uh, communities uh, of support tourist communities, agricultural communities. And so the issue of who has access to the good fishing places, who has access to the lakes and rivers, uh, became a way of thinking about the equity system, the ecosystem, and the climate emergency, understanding that we're part of an ecosystem and equity systems. So I, I find it's helpful to talk with people about their experiences and and how they view the system. Again, in social construction, I work with people of color. They can describe how they experience whatever systems they're part of, education, criminal justice. Um, and uh, that gives us a window into connecting lived experience with systems. One final example, I did a evaluation uh, some years ago on the uh, the family of how how government programs were supporting families that experienced abuse, um, and the uh, we interviewed mothers whose children had been abused and and about their experience. It turns out that a a woman who has a a child uh, whose child is is abused uh, physically or sexually ends up having to deal with 17 different agencies. Uh, the foster care system, the education system, the criminal justice system, the court system, uh, the welfare system, 
the transport system, uh, police system, uh, all of these different systems, none of whom talk to each other, all of whom want the same data, and all of whom wanted to have us ask questions about the mother's experience with their agency. Well, we found out in the pilot study that the mothers never quite knew who they were talking to. And to them, it was just one big, horrible system. They didn't distinguish the court system from the social work system, from the police system. Why do all these people keep asking me the same question? Why aren't they talking to each other? And it was clearly that it was re-traumatizing the, uh, the mothers. Um, and But to them, it was all one system, one horrible, monstrous system. Um, and so from a social constructist point of view, I want to find out how people use that language, how they understand it, how it's changed. They hear about it in the news. They hear it about it on television uh, and to find ways of connecting it with people's lived experience. Yeah. So I hear a couple of things. One um, is that idea of meeting people where they are using the language that they use and to really understand their experience. And, and I also heard a story of, uh, you know, using metaphors. Mm -hmm. What's what is the metaphor that they can best understand? Cause I definitely have had people look at me kind of cross-eyed if we say something about, you know, have you, uh, what, what systems change, uh, have you seen happen in your community? And they kind of look at you. So I think, you know, explaining using um, those metaphors or those experiences. And I work a lot uh, in in the foster care area, so I appreciate that that example so much uh, because there is so much traumatizing and reabusing that that happens in that space in the name of helping children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So then let's talk about. Um, uh, let's kind of talk, go back to that idea of principles then. So how can using a principles approach then? So if, if we, if we meet people where they are, if we use the language that, that is their language, if we use uh, the metaphors uh, and their experiences, how can we um, use a principles based approach to work with community organizations or community uh, coalitions or collaboratives because, you know, um, we don't all get along these days. And I'm thinking maybe principles might help us come to a common understanding or a common vision about what we want. Well, as, as you know, um, uh, many organizations, perhaps most, go through some kind of of strategic process of deciding what their values are. Um, that's more common than identifying principles, but mission, vision, as you talked about, a mission, vision board. Um, and so when we sort of take that stuff apart and uh, organizations are based upon some kind of beliefs and, and, and values. Uh, and so in what I use to distinguish values from principles is values are the things we believe in. Principles are behavioral. They tell you how to behave. They tell you what to do. So if you take an organization these days, uh, you know, DEI is a big, big thing these days, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are values. We believe in diversity. We believe in equity. We believe in inclusion. Those are things to believe in. But when they become a principle, you need an action verb. Principles require verbs. And so the, the facilitation question is, what are you going to do about equity? Are you going to 
believe in it, support it, uh, act on it, uh, model it, ensure it, uh, how high are your verb stakes? And then as a principle gets articulated, um, the evaluation issue, historically, organizations do value exercises. They generate values, put them on the wall, and don't do much else with them. When we convert them to principles that are behavioral, then they can be evaluated. And there are three primary evaluation questions. Are the principles really meaningful to the people for whom they're supposed to be meaningful? Do they really believe they're important in guiding their action? Um, so how do people respond to the notion of principles who are supposed to adhere to them? Then, if they do find them meaningful, are they actually walking the talk? Are they adhering the, to the principles? And thirdly, if they adhere to them, what results from that? So principles is not just about process. It's, a, it's about results. Um, uh, and so uh, an example that's community-based is the Blandon Foundation, again, that has as one of its principles to nurture community connections. And um, they're trying to build social capital in communities. So the, the overall um, value is to value healthy communities and the verb of nurturing then nurture uh, community connections and healthy communities got us into a major kind of evaluation about what kind of relationships people had, what were the different dimensions of community nurturing, um, what kind of things strengthened it, what were the barriers to community nurturing, and did the foundation itself act out that value? Um, were they community-based? Were they uh, community-oriented? How were they perceived by people in communities? Uh, and so taking that concept of community, giving it a verb like nurture, and then looking at what does that mean evaluatively, um, nurturing community is both process and outcome, that the process of engaging people together is the way you get stronger community, but a stronger community is one that has high social connections. So it becomes integrated in that way. Uh, and evaluation helps people look at whether they're adhering to their principles uh, and where those adherence takes them. Yeah. So if, a, if an organization says, um, you know, we're all in, you know, with DEI, we value diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, and the evidence of that is we hired a DEI staff right. person, right? But there's a pay gap, for example. Let's just, there's a pay gap between what we pay uh, men and women or uh, uh, people of color and, 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 and people who look like you and me, right? Then that's not really living that principle. That's right. Yeah, to your example. Yeah. Yep. And, and so is that that's where the evaluation piece the evaluation is what what does it mean to walk walk the talk and interestingly the one of the most common principles uh, when I did the, the book I looked at at principles um, philanthropic foundations are big on DEI and they're also one of the most common principles in the foundation world uh, is do no harm um, and it it turns out that that's about as meaningless a principle as you can have um, because you actually don't know what constitutes harm on an upfront basis. 
Um, and ironically, most of these foundations are trying to bring about change. And from a systems point of view, one of the premises of systems um, thinking is that systems are actually neutral in the sense that the, they every system is operating in the way it's been designed to operate by the people who benefit from it. And if you're involved in system change, the people who are benefiting from the current system are going to feel harmed. Um, they're not, not everybody in a change process is happy that the change is going on and doing nothing can do harm. But most of our decisions in life are not about no harm. In fact, even in the Hippocratic Oath, the phrase not to do harm is part of a context that basically says that physicians should not experiment on people without knowing what they're doing. That's where do no harm comes in. It's about um, mindless experimentation or self-serving experimentation. But most of our decisions in life are actually trade-offs rather than doing no harm. You you uh, take a breast to, to save a life. You, you take medications with side effects to deal with uh, a major problem. Um, you uh, make changes in nutrition that you may not particularly like in order to have a healthier body. We're having to trade off things all the time. And so um, a more appropriate principle is to be conscious and systematic about how you're making decisions, including the risk to the, to the people involved uh, in affected by those decisions, so that you're assessing potential harm. But the notion of no harm is actually not a very meaningful standard and not even a desirable one if you're trying to bring about systems change in racist and, and uh, inequitable systems where the people who benefit from those systems are going to feel harmed. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I can imagine that um, there aren't many people who are going to drop the velvet rope and say, oh, yes, I'm happy to participate in this thing that will change my economy, my lifestyle, my, my privilege, whatever, whatever that, that be. I once was in a training and the trainer said um, to the community group I was with, you'll know you're doing a good job and having an impact when people start complaining. Right. That's right. That's <laughs> And, and the other thing about these principles, they're often in conflict. One of the major foundations that everybody would recognize has two of their principles are to be community-oriented in their grant-making and to be lean and mean. Which of those do you suppose trumps? Uh, probably to be <laughs> lean and mean. And it's, it's, it's not a recognition that being community-based takes a lot of resources, including staff time. So that that foundation ends up mainly moving money, not being community-based, because they give more precedent to uh, being lean and mean, as you suspected, because they're worried about being um, criticized for having high overhead instead of viewing staff not as overhead, but as assets. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole, we could have a whole conversation about uh, foundations and their uh, perspective because, you know, they've talked, a, a, I, I'm saying they, but I think in the foundation community, there's been a lot of conversation about being, you know, embedded and community led and community driven and community power um, without a, sometimes uh, a lot of thinking uh, about what does that mean for a foundation when they come into a community 
right? What it, what is that power dynamic that that happens? Um, right. So yeah, I think we have a long way to go in trying to figure all these things out. Indeed, and uh, principles does especially gives a way for evaluators to work with social movements, community based movements, where there isn't a predetermined set of outcomes. There aren't already smart goals and logic models, but in fact, people are 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 driven on on principles. Um, that's the way social movements start. I did a book with two Canadian uh, colleagues called Getting to Maybe How the World Has Changed, which in which we studied social movements like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, Mohammed Yunus microfinance uh, programs, um, uh, efforts to to uh, create more equity in communities. And we found that the people involved in those movements were principles driven, not uh, goal driven. They they didn't, Mothers Against Drunk Driving didn't set out to get alcohol uh, blood rates down to 0 0.8, 0.08. They set out to deal with the system of drunk driving that did not punish drunk drivers. Um, and uh, having lost loved ones to drunk drivers and seeing them get handed license suspensions for 30 days. Um, that created a movement of mothers that began with the punishment should fit the crime and that people who are habitually drunk drivers should be taken off the roads. Um, but they didn't have training programs for judges or new policies on, on um, defining drunkenness or deep pocket lawsuits in mind. What they had in mind was the system had to change. And social movements are often then driven by principles aimed at changing systems. Yeah, and it's, it just seems to me that the conversation really about is how principles can help us get clarity on what we want to work on. And the we, I'm, I'm talking about the collective we, the we, whatever this community is uh, right. that we're talking about, that can help us get clarity and come to understanding. And it can also um, help us uh, see the benefits, but also the pitfalls, because to use your, there, go, there will be trade-offs. It will not be perfect. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, uh, principles are really inspirational uh, in a way that, that measurable goals often are not. Um, and and a, a, a really powerful principle does give you powerful guidance uh, on the inclusion uh, front. Uh, the principle of nothing about us without us is a powerful principle. It's very clear. Uh, you don't get data, you don't get uh, access, you don't get resources, you don't get our time, um, unless we feel that we have been meaningfully included. And they decide the criteria of inclusion, not the evaluator or not the funder. Um, and so that's an example of a very powerful uh, principle that we're hearing more from indigenous communities, from people with disabilities, from people who've been um, historically left out of decision-making, planning, uh, community-based uh, programs, uh, nothing about us without us, where us is the community. So it's a great social construction, nothing about us, meaning the community, without us, the community. Um, and it then requires people to decide who the us refers to. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, uh, I, I work with a lot of community coalitions who um, uh, say that, um, but if 
we really look at whether or not the us is there, uh, we'd have a lot. Let's just say we'd have a lot of work to do. Well, that that's what principles focused evaluation is. That's exactly a nice example. You you unpack that and say what what does it mean? Yeah, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? So, um, on this idea of uh, context and systems level change, and um, this is really helping me get clarity on how I can certainly help my community groups. I'm also thinking about the idea. I've been thinking a lot about um, thinking big and small. I don't know why, but that's resonating with me, thinking big and small. And then that led, that led me to thinking locally and globally. And I know you're doing a lot of global work. So is it important for community organizations to think locally and globally? I'm thinking about your, your, uh, your ice fishermen. And uh, I was born in Florida and have lived in Georgia a million years. That sounds terrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> But should we think locally and globally? Is that part of the context and systems, or do we not care about that? No, it's a, it's a very big part of it, and we actually now have a word for it, which is the word global, G-L-O-C-A-L. Uh, it combines global and local into the word global, which is that intersection of global and local. Um, and uh, the pandemic is a great example of how all of us were affected by what goes on globally. Um, the uh, the local responses, whether it's at the community level, um, the regional level, the state level, the organizational level, and then the international and, and global level, um, we are very much affected by global patterns. The uh, climate change is clearly a global issue that has its local manifestations. And I was giving examples of that with the Minnesota um, example that uh, just talked about. And uh, um, the dramatic changes, a good example, again, in, from Minnesota, I'm, I'm uh, 75 miles north of Minneapolis in the North Woods. And this area that I'm in, um, is, the United States is uh, based upon agriculture, is based upon zones. There are eight zones in the United States from the Alaska down to Florida. Uh, and those zones uh, are identified in agriculture as supporting different kinds of plants, different seasons of growth, um, different degrees of sunlight. For the first time since th those zones were created, right where I am two years ago was moved from zone three to zone four because of climate change. Longer seasons, that means different invasive species. That means different trees. That means different gardening. That means different flowers. Um, and that changes uh, everything for master gardeners, for what kind of food is, is produced, uh, what the trees are. Uh, and, and so with climate, with health, um, with issues of equity, you know, we just passed the 8 billion mark for human population in the world. And the estimates are that we already have more refugees in the world than at any time since World War II, and that the number of refugees, the immigration issues politically around the world, are only going to, to get increased, and they affect everywhere. They clearly affect Georgia, Florida, Minnesota is a major immigrant um, uh, uh, pathway. Um, uh, so all of these things, the education markets, technology, 
um, health, climate, the misinformation, social media are all global. They have aspects of local and global. And we have to help people understand that larger context for what's happening locally and also have people at the global level understand what's happening locally. That interaction is critical to systems thinking about how communities can engage uh, in the future. Uh, yeah, I'm flashing back to when um, my family and I visited Alaska um, a few years ago. And uh, you can't travel around Alaska and not see climate change. You, it's everywhere. And even um, even the folks that, that live there will tell you it's a reality that they they see the melting permafrost. Yeah, the glaciers are gone. I mean, Glacier National Park no longer has glaciers. One of my favorite places. Beautiful. (laughs) So beautiful. So one of the things that you and I talked about um, a few weeks ago when we met, when we talked about what is community, you said, what if we talked about the world is community? I don't know if you remember saying that. So what what, what did you mean by that? And maybe that's kind of related to this conversation that we're having about thinking locally. Well, there, there is a movement of people who think of themselves as world citizens um, and uh, who, who make that their primary identity. You know, the, the nation states that we're all a part of uh, are actually fairly recent uh, in, in human history. We've developed strong allegiances to those nation states, but the um, nation states, uh, the, the configurations we have now are mostly 300 years old. Um, and they keep changing, so that that the what uh, as the the boundaries around countries go on. You know, the Ukraine war is this nonsense about countries, about who's in which country and who gets to call themselves a a country of the tribalism that we put ourselves in. Um, but what things like global warming, uh, climate change, the pandemic. Um, the sense that that we all are human beings. We know, for example, that race is not really uh, a physiological phenomenon. It's a social construction. We're the same as human beings. And uh, what blows my mind uh, is the notion of mitochondrial Eve, that we're all descended from the same female gene pool about 200,000 years ago. Every single person on the earth uh, comes from that same gene pool. We have a common ancestral matrilineal lineage um, out of East Africa. Uh, we've all evolved from there. And so the, the sense in which we're, the future of humanity is at stake. It's not the future of Florida or the future of Minnesota. It's the future of humanity's at stake with, with climate change. Uh, and with things like the pandemic, I talked to epidemiologists who believe that coronavirus was simply a dress rehearsal for the big one that's still yet to come. Um, uh, and that we're, we really are all in this together, that uh, rich or poor, uh, what part of the world we're in, we're going to be facing the future of humanity in a very uh, palpable way. And in that sense, there is a world community that's at stake. The dinosaurs were on Earth for 65 million years. Human beings have been on the Earth for about 2 million years. 
I don't think we're going to make it to 65. Wow. 65 million years. That's a long time. And it took an external event to wipe them out. We're doing it ourselves. Yeah, I was going to say, we're doing a pretty good job ourselves. We're, We're doing it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So is that is that kind of where your blue marble evaluation came from and we were thinking is is it that is. yeah, is that kind I mean, of you want do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I was in Africa when the first walking on the moon took place. Um in fact I uh was in the real one of the villages I worked in, my moped broke down. I had a radio, shortwave radio with me, and I listened to the moon landing alongside a dirt road with a broken mobile app where I'd just come from um, uh, a village, about 300 people, where the director of extension's mother lived, and he had invited me to go out. He was very interested in the the moon. It turned out to be a full moon. And uh, he invited me out to his village to meet his family, his extended family, and his mother. And while she was serving us millet stew, uh, he said to her, Mother, the Americans are going to the moon uh, tomorrow. And she turned to me and said, have a good trip. Um, <laughs> she had never been out of her village in, in her life. And so uh, Ouagadougou was as far away as the moon, as far as she was concerned. And and uh, uh, so the uh, uh, that that sense of of uh, the image that came out of the last Apollo mission that's called the blue marble, that image of the earth with no national borders, just that big blue marble out there in, in earth uh, is the image of our global community uh, that we are. That's our home. There's no nation state lines on that globe. There are no dividing. There's no races. Um, there are no differentiations. That is our home. And that image from space shows us what that, that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I think of myself as a member of the world community, a global citizen, uh, as my first primary uh, intersectional identity. Well, global citizen, um, let me ask you the question I ask all my guests. When you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see? I think one of the things we're really just on the beginning of, of, of learning um, that is unprecedented in as we move forward in human history is in what it's going to mean for our main community connections to be virtual. Um, that's already the case in a few years in my life. I have stronger virtual connections now than I do geographic um, in, a, in the rural community I'm a part of. I've been here for 10 years. I know a few folks in, in town, but my evaluation community is a virtual community. And the, the pandemic really strengthened that. As much as people are zoomed out and tired of the internet, and it was great to be back together face-to-face in New Orleans, that's a week. Um, the rest of the time, we're being connected virtually, and we are we have a generation growing up to be comfortable with that. An example of the difference that makes technologically, when, when I grew up, uh, I was eight years old before we had a telephone. And, and the telephone we had was a party line telephone. So there were eight different families on the telephone. And it was something that was only used for business. We were limited to three minutes uh, on a call. I never had social conversations. And to this day, 
I'm not comfortable talking on the phone. You know, I don't have hour and two hour conversations on the phone. I have three minute conversations on the phone. But my children have phones implanted in their ears, um, you know, and, and their devices are with them all the time. And they're constantly in co contact with people. They've grown up with that world. Um, so the notion of virtual communities and sub-communities and multiple communities, that future, for better or worse, because it's both frightening, there are predators out there, but it's also ways that people are connecting around the world that were never possible before. I'm part of a global community, colleagues around the world. Um, and that future is part of what I hope mobilizes us to face climate change and other what are now being called polycrises, multiple overlapping crises, that we need to be able to do that together. And to do it together, we have to have a virtual global community. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. So um, is there anything else you want to share before we close or not? I would just um, share that, that actually one of the, the part of the poly crisis, and this is in the center of your work and the importance of this podcast, is that in the transitions in community, there's a lot of loss of sense of community. Mm. Uh, people are very isolated. The elderly, uh, elderly people, the the warehouses that we're putting elderly people in are not community um, in any healthy in any healthy way, and the the large number of people living in isolation and in poverty, uh, without community resources, um, the sense of isolation, virtually all of the um, mass violence uh, shootings and things that we see are by people who are isolated, people who are not part of a community, who don't feel a part of something, who who in fact are excluded and, and alienated. Um, and so uh, there's a level... We, we typically think of mental health as an individual phenomenon, but there is a community mental health, a community health about how people feel connected to each other that is problematic, that cannot be taken for granted. And that we know that individual mental illness is very much connected to a lack of community, yeah. to a lack of caring, of, of feeling isolated. And so when we talk about the future of humanity in a virtual community, we can't take it for granted. It has to be built, um, nurtured. We need people who are skilled facilitators to help build community, uh, to help people connect with each other, um, and uh, to evaluate the status of our communities. So I want to affirm the importance of the work you're doing. Um, I'm honored to be a part of, of this podcast, but thinking about community, uh, it is essential. We are social animals, and our survival as a humanity being threatened will much depend on whether or not we can find community together in a way mm -hmm. that solves community problems. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm so honored. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the work you uh, have done and you certainly have inspired my work. Uh, and uh, we didn't even talk about your singing prowess and how you got <laughs> everybody singing at AEA, but I don't know. We'll have to have that conversation another time. But uh, Michael, how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more about your books or engage you in any way? Uh, Utilization Focused Evaluation has a website um, and there's a place to enter in inquiries there. So uh, you go to the Utilization 
dash evaluation evaluation website. Uh, you can uh, there are resources there, webinars, uh, uh, publications, and then I have a series of YouTube videos. Um, I have a Michael Quinn Patton YouTube channel, and people can who want to stay in touch with uh, things that I'm doing. I'm doing uh, videos uh, and uh, uh, trying to communicate with the younger folks who don't read so much by uh, <laughs> using their technology. An old dog trying to learn a new trick. Uh, so their Michael Quinn Patton YouTube channel is a way to see uh, what's coming up for me. And I, the latest video I just posted a week ago is about systems uh, change. And it's a, actually a debate with uh, one of the major systems figures who thinks that evaluators are not doing systems evaluation right. So uh, I've done a video response to his uh, thinking and those uh, listeners who are interested in systems and community might want to be interested in that uh, YouTube. It's called Using Systems in Evaluation. All right. I love it. And I will definitely put a link to the YouTube channel in our show notes. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anne. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you would be so kind, would you please like and share this episode? Tell somebody you care about, somebody who does community work about the podcast. That would help so much. Also wanted to let you know that we have revamped the resources page on our website. So if you go to communityevaluationsolutions.com, go to our resource page, you're going to find a whole new look and a new tool, the Nonprofit Evaluation Capacity Self-Assessment, designed to help your organization make informed decisions and take action to build a stronger program evaluation for your nonprofit. Uh, coming soon is a coalition capacity self-assessment. So be sure and look out for that. Thanks, everybody. And I'll see you next time.